0: You're listening to The Desperation Podcast. Tune in this week for week two of the series, You Asked For It, with special guest speaker, Pastor Andrew Arndt.
1: Welcome back to DSM. It's the summer edition. We have so many of our friends and colleagues out traveling. And so we just thought we would change things up over the course of this month and do something a little bit different, to be able to get in each other's worlds a little bit. Sometimes we can come into this tent week after week and just stare in a dark room at the back of someone else's head and listen to me yell for 45 minutes at a microphone. And so we just thought we would change it up a little bit. And so we did this series, and we're doing this series called You Asked for it sounds like you're in trouble. Like anytime anybody ever used that phrase with me, it meant I was in trouble. Like you, oh, you asked for it, Buster. You know, one of those kind of deals. That's not what it is. You guys have been submitting questions in over the last couple of weeks. And, and we've gotten so many of them. I haven't even talked to my team about this, but we've gotten so many of them. We want to make sure that we answer them all. And so what I was thinking is once we get on the other side of Despo, maybe do a thing on DSM Insta, do an Insta Live, and tackle one question every single week that we could jump in and really wrestle with and back and forth. Because, man, some of the questions that you've asked really deserve a good answer. And so let me just tell you, so week two, as we get into week two of you asked for it, one of the questions was... Andrew remind me I want to word it exactly the way it, what why is god love? All right, give me the first one. What does it mean that god is real? Why does god not want me to harm myself? And what does it mean that god is love? Y'all, I'm so glad that I did not have to take this week because these are really really Big questions, but you know what, we take them seriously, we've heard you, and so we have one of our pastors at New Life, yeah, he's a friend of mine, he's one of the most brilliant thinkers that I know, and I'm not just pumping him up, I'm really mean, and I'm such a fan of his, if you were here a couple of weeks ago and heard Pastor Andrew preach in the main service about faith, that sermon is still rocking my world, so get on your feet, and please welcome tonight to DSM, Pastor, Pastor Andrew Arndt.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, When my, you can sit down. When my daughter was about five years old, one time she described something that we were doing as too many much, and that was too many much, but thank you for that, I appreciate it. Uh, my name is Andrew, uh, one of the pastors on staff here, I'm a teaching pastor mainly with Friday night, but I teach in other places, got some Friday nighters in the crowd, good to see you, but I teach in other places when they ask me. And little bio on me, just to give you some context, uh, born and raised in a church, grew up in a little church in Wisconsin, five or 600 people, and uh, New Life was always on our radar screen, actually. Uh, our senior pastor was friends with some of the leadership here, and there was a lot of back and forth, so um, when I graduated high school, I went on to Oral Roberts University, so we got some <laughs> ORU people in the room, and then went up to Chicago, and I worked on a Master of Divinity up there, which is, I think, the wildest misnomer of any degree available, that you would spend three years studying theology and master the divine things, right? But uh, it, was a, it was a good degree, good time. I went that, back down to Oklahoma. I was an associate pastor there for a while. And then my wife and I pastored a really cool church in Denver from 2009 till last year, which was sort, sort of this interesting kind of charismatic, liturgical, house churchy, organic church kind of blend. And really fun, we grew the church to five or six hundred people, and then um, felt like the Lord was calling us to lay it down, and we came here, and we have just so enjoyed being here. This is one of the most authentic, warm-hearted, open-hearted, generous, and hungry-for-God communities I think I've ever been around, and it it was funny just even during worship, watching y'all and being in this room. When I was in high school, um, our youth room was very similar to this. And I thought about how, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 37 this summer. So I think that makes me an official old guy. Um, high school for me, 20 years ago already. Unbelievable. But I thought about how, while we were worshiping, how um, those years of your life, God just does something and you're emerging out of your kind of childish junior high faith and you're starting to ask some really serious and hard questions and destiny is being shaped. You're starting to come to grips with who you are. And I think about some of the moments that I had in spaces like this where, where we were just chasing God and I'm laying on the floor crying and snot flowing and God would drop little things in my soul that I honest to goodness 20 years later they're still feeding my soul and they're still shaping who I am and they continue in a weird way some of the things that God spoke to me way back then they're like continuing to unfold. I like hold those and I watch God continue to unwrap new meaning out of them. And I, I say that just to say, um, you know, it's easy in this space of your life to wish it away. You're just wanting the next moment to happen. Man, when I'm done with high school, everything's going to be amazing. Well, when I'm done with college, everything is going to be amazing. Well, I'm done with my first stupid job, everything's going to be amazing. And these, just don't. Just don't. Right now, what you have together in community and what you have going on here is as precious a thing as you can hope to find. So be open because God wants to speak to you. So uh, I have two questions that we're wrestling with tonight. Um, The second question was a cheat question. I don't know who wrote that, but they tucked two questions into one. But it's two big kind of philosophical sort of questions, I think, that are really, really related. One is on the reality of God. What does it mean to me that God is real? And then two really has to do with the love of God and God's How God wants us to treat ourselves because of that. So I want to tackle those questions in order and show you how they're connected. And then I'm just going to pray over you for a little bit. But before we get into the text of Scripture, by the way, if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to open in them to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. And um, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, if you're new to the whole Bible thing. And chapter 3 comes after chapter 2. Yeah, in Exodus. So, you know, testing your intelligence here. If you're there, say, I'm there. there. Good job. All right, let's pray. Holy God, we worship you. We worship you. We worship you. May our spirits rise to meet your spirit in these moments that we have together. The scripture that you have given to us is an inexhaustible treasure of wisdom and insight. But the New Testament actually says that that inexhaustible treasure of wisdom and insight is what it is because it points to the one in whom are all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's Jesus, the Lord. And Jesus, you said that whoever two or three were gathered in your name... That you'd be there in the midst of them. And that you'd be there to bind and to loose. Which I think means that what is evil in our midst, you'll wrap it up. And what is stored up by way of goodness in the heart of God, that you'll release it into our midst. So, I can't pray any better than that tonight. I'm asking that where we are together, this space where we have two or three and so many more that you would bind up every evil thing in this space tonight. Everything that is thwarting destiny in us, everything that's thwarting relationships, everything that is making life miserable, every single thing that comes from the pit of hell, we're asking that you would bind it tonight. And then we ask that you would loose all of the power of the kingdom of heaven into this space. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would rise up in your strength, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fall in your power. And Father, we ask that your fathering love would be here and that we would walk out of this place tonight knowing nothing other than the good love of God that comes to us in the Father, in the Son, in the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're asking. We're asking that the words of our mouths tonight, Lord, and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. <laughs> You're excited. Exodus chapter 3. You know, this is an iconic and treasured passage in uh, the history of the Jewish people and, uh, and Christians for the last 2,000 years, and for good reason. Mo- Exodus 3 and verse 1. Now Moses, Moses would later become the deliverer of the people of God out of Egypt, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and you might remember in the story of Moses that there was a moment where he kind of thought, I'm the designated one to lead the people of God up out of Egypt, and so he got all kind of fired up about that, and he wound up killing an Egyptian person, and somebody saw it, and um, it was a bad day for Moses, and so he ran. He ran. Into the desert. He's really running away in some ways from his calling, a calling that he had tried to execute on his own power and not in the power of God. And so he has this, God's kind of dialed him up for a really profound encounter. And so he led his flock to the far side of the wilderness and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw. That though the bush was on fire, what does the text say? It was on fire, but it did not burn up. So it burned, but it was not consumed. Okay, There's something in that. The question that we're tackling first is what does it mean to me that God is real? And this text, I think, gives us a window into it. So Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn And so Moses thought, I will go over and I will see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from right within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this Moses said, hid his face because he was afraid to look at God, the inexhaustible holiness of God. I was rushing at Moses, and he was afraid to look at God, and God begins to speak to him about what he wants Moses to do in terms of delivering the people from, uh, from Egypt. And Jump down to verse 13. Moses said to God, well, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me. What is his name? Uh, Then what shall I tell them, right? So suppose I go to them and I go, hey guys, no, really, really, I'm going to get you up out of Egypt. And they go, well, what's the name of God? Who's the God that sent you? What am I supposed to tell them? And God says to him, God says, tell them, verse 14, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Such an evocative phrase. I am who I am. God is saying to Moses, I'll tell you who I am. I am the one being that does not, and I'm going to get real philosophical here, kind of met, metaphysical here for a second, okay? I'm the one being that does not derive my being from anything else. So I am not because anything else is, but I am because I am. It's provocative, mysterious language that's intended to convey a really profound truth about the being of God to Moses. Every created thing is because something else is. You are because your parents were. You are because of the food that you eat in the air that you Consume and the water that you drink and all of that, and everything else that exists exists because something else exists. All existence is derivative in some way. Are we on the same page tonight? But God, God is the one being whose existence is not derivative in any way. And that sets God in this completely different category from us. A completely different category from us. It makes it such that God. It's the best way to say it. God is such that he does not compete with us for space. So, God is not one very large being rattling around in the cosmos that we have to kind of watch out for, okay? God is, as some of the philosophers and theologians have said, God is the ground of all beingness. God is not one thing among many things, but God is the very essence of thingness. He's where all thingness comes from. And so his glory can rest on things. His presence can rest on things without consuming them or without competing with them. Are we on the same page? That's the whole importance of the burning bush. That God can be fully present in there on that burning bush. And the bush is not pushed out of the way by God. But in fact, the bush finds its bushness in God. (laughs) The bush, the bush is elevated by God. The bush is transformed by God. The bush is, to use New Testament language, the bush is transfigured by the glory of God because God and the bush are not competing for space. Are we on the same page tonight? One of the great poets of the church, a man by the name of Dante Alighieri, an Italian poet, wrote the Divine Comedy, one of the greatest, I think maybe the greatest poem that any human being has ever written. And one of the things that he said about God in this poem, Follow Me Now, is he says about God, he says, God, you are the one who circumscribes all, but you are circumscribed by nothing. In other words, to circumscribe is to um, circum, right, right? And then scribe, right, around it. So God, his, follow me now, you can trace his presence around Every point in created reality, but you could never draw a line around him. God is not one being among many, He's not one thing among many things, but He's the space in which our thingness finds itself. He's on a totally different plane from us. The Apostle Paul was talking to a group of very philosophically minded Greek folks in the city of the ancient city of Athens. And he says to them this, it's on the screen behind me, Exodus chapter, sorry, Acts chapter 17, put the next slide up. Paul says that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and he does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, rather he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So he's saying you can't put God in a box, (laughs) it's not... It doesn't work that way. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Paul is saying, God, he just, he lives on a different plane of being from us. And he says, from one man, he made all the nations, next slide, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Say it with me. Though he is not far from any one of us. There are times that we come to these sort of crisis points in our life where we go, I don't know where God is. I can't feel him. I can't see him. If the biblical claim about God is true, then there has never been a moment of your life or my life when we were outside of the presence of God. When he was not closer to us than our very skin, than our very breath. When he was not near to us on a molecular level, on a subatomic level. Paul says in the book of Colossians that in Christ Jesus, all of us, this is the way that he talks about it, he says that we all subsist in him. It means that somehow our being coheres in him. Like, we are what we are because he is what he is. And he's always near. And so he says he's not far from any one of us. Next slide. For in him we live and move And have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring in him. We live and move and have our being. There's an ancient strain of mystical Judaism that actually refers to God as the Makom. Can you say Makom? Makom means the place. (laughs) God is not a supreme being that we're competing with. God is our place. God is our home. God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And like I said earlier, I grew up in the church, and as a kid, I was always kind of aware of God. But in my mind, God was more like Santa Claus, or the Greek god Zeus or something, than he was the biblical god. And I just always kind of thought, you know, in your awareness of God, like God the Father is kind of easy to picture. And he's sort of this white man with a long beard sitting in a cloud up there somewhere who kind of jumps into time here and there to do things, either to reward people or to punish people. And that was kind of my idea. And I mostly had a friendly relationship with God. But it was, it was, it was childish. And when I was in 11th grade, it was about 20 years ago, I was at an early kind of crisis point in my faith where there were sort of these competing groups in our church that were saying different things about God and advocating for certain kinds of experiences in God. And it was all really confusing to me. And I loved God. And I loved Jesus with my whole heart. And I remember being in my prayer closet one morning before school and I was kneeling by my bedside and I had my Bible open. And I I think I was reading the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 if memory serves and there was something about it you know that just that beautiful poetry of Paul's love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not boast it is not proud it is not rude it's not self-seeking it's not easily angered it keeps no record of wrongs love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth it always protects always trusts always hopes always perseveres love never fails and Paul goes on to say that all of the things prophecy will cease and tongues will cease and knowledge will actually in some ways it will pass away he says because right now we see through a glass darkly he says but one day when God returns when he makes manifest his full presence then he says we shall see face to face now these three remain Paul says faith hope and love but the greatest of these is is love and it was something about reading that. It just got, it just like, you know, you have, have you ever had these moments where you're like in the presence of God or something happens and your whole world kind of goes, <coughs> it just shifts and something unlocks for you. And for me, that morning, I, I remember hearing, I was reading that chapter. I remember hearing the voice of God saying to me, Andrew, when the scripture describes me, who I am and what I'm like, It doesn't say I am signs. It doesn't say I am wonders. It doesn't say I am the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say I'm power. It doesn't say I'm this, that, or the other thing. When it uses a word to describe who I am and what I'm like, like what my essence is, it says that I am love. And if you lock into me as the source of all love, you'll never go wrong. And it was like, to be, I, it's, I was like baptized in that or something. I don't know what happened, but God, it like sh- everything shifted for me. Where God was no longer a being out there, but he was the space. And I, I just remember, like it, my eyes, I felt like my eyes even were baptized. Like instead of seeing God as just kind of this powerful being out there, I just felt and I sensed God everywhere. It was this immersive experience of the presence of God that has never really left me. And I know that that's an authentic experience of God because that is the way that scripture talks about God. And some of you, you know, your relationship with God is really kind of combative and almost adversarial because you feel like God is a being among other beings and you're kind of having to avoid him or appease him or, and it's not like that. If we go back to the question that we opened with, what does it mean For me, that God is real, the answer is this. Next slide. God is real means that he is the pervasive, loving presence that surrounds my life at all times, willing my good. God is like a warm blanket that we wrap ourselves up in. God is like, have you ever been on the, beach and you go out in the morning and the sun comes up over the water and you feel the warmth of the sun on your body, that's like an echo of what, what God is. Have you ever been, have you ever felt like really lost or lonely or afraid or disconnected and you had a parent or a loved one or just somebody who cared about you wrap their arms around you and tell you it's all going to be all right. You are valuable. Have you ever had that happen? That's an echo Of who God is, who he always is, who he never stops being. Because if he were to stop being that, he would stop being God. That's what God is. God is not chasing us around with thunderbolts. He is not looking to smite us. He is not looking to destroy our lives or make us miserable. God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. We rise up in who we are because he is Who he is. Are we on the same page tonight? Which leads me directly into the second question. That dual question. You can put it up on the screen. Why does God want me to stop self-harm? And why does he love me in the first place? Why does God want me to stop self-harm? And why does he love me in the first place? And I, I don't know who wrote this question. And I don't know what this is coming out of. So, I'm going to try to answer this the best way I know how, and then I'm going to pray over you. Um, I have four kids Ethan, Gabe, Bella, and Liam. And they're all, uh, my oldest two are middle school age, and Bella just turned nine, and Liam is going to be six this summer. And um, to become a parent is, after discovering Jesus and getting married it's maybe the most life-altering thing that can happen to you and you can't even really fully describe what it does to you but I I remember uh, I remember holding my oldest son Ethan for the first time in the hospital Mandy had been in labor for like a day and a half and the delivery lasted forever it was just a train (laughs) wreck. oh there he is though we got him the kid finally and it's, I'm, I'm telling you, it's the weirdest thing as a dad, David Martin Sr., you know, about this, the strangest thing that you see this sort of parasitic thing growing in your wife, you know, and you have, you have this relationship with it, kind of, you know, like I would talk to her belly and stuff, and we would sing over the baby, you know? but then, but you don't, there's not contact, and I held Ethan for the first time, you have contact with your kid. And Mandy was so exhausted, she fell asleep, and I'm there with, I remember this, I'm there with Ethan, and I'm holding Ethan for the first time, me and my boy, looking in each other's eyes. And I remember starting to tell him, I didn't know what to do, you know, first time dad, so I started telling him about his family. I was like, well, my name is Andrew, and um, this is your mom over here, you know, and this is our family history, and this is what we're like, and (laughs) I swear to you, this is exactly what I did. (laughs) And I just, and so I'm telling him about our family, our family culture, and I think you're going to be a great addition to our family. (laughs) And I remember telling him, I started talking to him about the love of God. I don't know why that came out, but I said, you know, one of these, I said, when you're older, Ethan, like the reality of God is going to dawn on you and you're going to know how much he cares about you and how he knit you together in your mother's womb, and how you're fearfully and wonderfully made, and how he has good plans for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you. And I, guys, I lost it. And I don't know if I was just overtired or what, but I'm weeping, weeping over this little creature that I'm holding, that I've only known, really, for a 30 minutes, an hour or something like that. And I remember, this is, you're gonna think of this as really dramatic, but I, I remember wiping my tears off of my face and I made the sign of the cross and I said, crossed him with tears, his dad's tears. And I said, "I said, Ethan, you're ours, you belong to us, you belong to the Arndt family and you belong to God forever. And I, I remember the feeling being, and it was so weird to me, the feeling was the feeling of, I don't even really know you, but I would do anything for you. I would lay down on the train tracks for you. I would take a bullet for you. I will, ex- I will exhaust myself to see to it that, the, that, that, that insofar as it is under my power, the maximum amount of good comes into your life. That is what I now exist for. And with every one of my kids, I've had a moment like that. And those moments will come roaring back to me in times when their behavior starts to go sideways or they start acting in ways that I know are destructive. That whole, like, I am here to will you good and to do you good all the days of your life so long as it is in my power to do so, that will come roaring back at me. And I think that that, that God is at least like that. And because he is infinite, here's a little bit of Christian teaching for you, God's infinitude doesn't mean that he's just a lot of something, okay? It doesn't mean he's like a lot loving or a lot powerful. It means that he is absolutely loving, absolutely powerful, and here's an implication of it. God can, that moment that I had for Ethan, is a, it's like a drop in the ocean of the love of God, okay? And God can tilt the whole of his fatherly affection towards each one of us. Like, think about it all of his love towards each one of us without robbing anybody else like you like each one of you in this room is the special object of God's affection at one point in the new testament hebrews chapter 12 the writer of hebrews actually says that you have come into the church of the firstborn do you know that when god held each one of you it was like you were the first time he'd had that experience And every moment of your life is like me holding Ethan except multiplied by the infinitude of God. The will to do good all the days of your life. One of the great scholars of the church, doctors of the church, Thomas Aquinas in the 11th century said that to love is to will the good of the other as other. And if God is the pervasive loving presence that surrounds our lives at all times, then I think that the reason that God doesn't want us to harm ourselves is because he loves us and he wills our good. And if, if what the scriptures teach about God is true, then the deepest truth of the universe is that God is love and that God can only ever always be love. First John four eighteen says that God is. Love. He's just love, he's just love. And I think about this self-harm thing in light of some of the things that we've seen in our culture. Just, I think it was just last week, uh, Anthony Bourdain, um, host of the show Parts Unknown, and um, famous world-famous chef, and TV personality. I mean, he had everything. And he committed suicide. I think about a few years back, Robin Williams, right? A comedian. Took his own life. Philip Seymour Hoffman, great actor before that. We've seen so much of that. And I don't know. The thing that troubles me about it is I think, what is that critical threshold of despair that you have to reach in your soul where that seems like a viable option? Where you go, it would actually be better for me not to live. I don't know what that's like, but here's what I do know. Somehow, somewhere, some way, like that is possible because we've lost contact with the love of God that calls us into the future. Not that we've done anything to run away with from it, but somewhere we've, we've lost contact with that first love of God that wills our good and wants us to exist and gives us future and gives us hope. And... If you're in this space tonight and you're struggling with that, struggling with feelings of despair and despondency and hopelessness, I'm here to tell you that God loves you. Beyond your feelings about yourself, the feelings about yourself are not true. They're not the truth of your existence. The truth of your existence is that you were fearfully and wonderfully made in the womb of your mother. The truth of your existence was that you were worth the price of the Son of God to God the Father. The truth of your existence is that God has never stopped thinking fondly of you, and He never will, no matter what you do, and no matter how you treat yourself, and no matter how you treat other people, and no matter how hopeless your life may seem at times. He wills your good, He wants your good. And he believes things for you that you cannot right now believe or see for yourself. And that's where faith comes in. (laughs) That we stretch out beyond our feelings and beyond our thoughts into the realm of the truth of who God is. So the answer to the question, um, why does God want me to stop self-harming is that God loves you. And what does it mean that he's love is that God loves you and wants you to stop self-harm because he is love. And he can do no other. So we're going to break in a minute um, to have some table discussion time, but I just want to take this moment just to pray and to invite the Spirit in. Um, So would you just get open here for a moment? And if you're in a space tonight where despair has reached critical thresholds in your life, you feel like there are places where you feel like you're almost engulfed in it, or just even, it doesn't even have to be engulfed. Like Just that mild, uh, the nagging thoughts of the enemy that come to you, that tell you that your life is worthless and meaningless, and that God's mad at you. If that's you, would you just hold that up before the Lord? Just get it real open. In the spirit of God, we invite you. We invite you. We invite you to move over that. We invite you to speak over that. And we say no to that in the mighty name of Jesus. Those things, those feelings of meaninglessness and hopelessness and despair and despondency and being unloved and unworthy, those are the things that in the mighty name of Jesus we bind up tonight. And we loose the power of the kingdom into those spaces. We loose love and we loose joy and we loose worth and value. We loose, we loose the smile of God into each soul. And we ask that these precious ones in this space tonight would rise up in every way, that they would rise up in all of the delight that you have for them, a delight that predates their coming into the world (laughs) and will never stop pursuing them all the days of their life.